Thanks, Cora, and thanks to everybody at the Brooklyn Public Library for so generously hosting us. This is the, the 14th year of the review panel in total, uh, but I've lost count of how many years at the Brooklyn Public Library because I kind of melded them all into one. I believe it's our fourth. It is our fourth year here at the Brooklyn Public Library. Thanks to all the staff here, and uh, especially warm thanks to Greg Richards, who is the sound engineer responsible for us being as crystal clear as we are, and for recording the event. A friendly reminder that you can hear podcasts of the review panel at artcritical.com. Going all the way back to October of 2004, when Jerry Saltz and Ken Johnson and Maureen Malarkey were my guests. This evening, as you can see, and as I'm sure you know, my very distinguished guests are all uh, people who are uh, familiars with this, uh, with our audience and with this format. Um, Roberta, indeed, Roberta Smith, co-chief art critic of the New York Times, is doing her 10th review panel, which, um, if it's any consolation, I'm doing my 80-something. So, <laughs> Barry Schwabsky, art critic of The Nation, uh, is also editor of a series of monographs published by Lund Humphreys on contemporary painters. He's at work himself on the title on Gillian Carnegie. And the next in the series comes out uh, soon um, on uh, Mary Weatherford. And Lila Pedro is the executive editor at The Shed, the new cultural center opening in Hudson uh, Yards, um, where she oversees all the editorial content um, of the various uh, stages and programs being offered there. Uh, they launch in April. Uh, Lila is very familiar as a critic. Uh, she's been an editor at both Brooklyn Rail and Hyperallergic, and she assures me that when she has the urge to write again, <laughs> it'll probably be in one of those places. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Now, don't be shy. I always like to ask this at the beginning. Who's at their first review panel? That's fabulous. I can see a few hands going up there, um, although I can't actually see much of the audience, but that's, that's probably... I can see how full and diverse you are, and that's, those, are the, those are the things we go for. So uh, the review panel, simplicity itself, we have gone out to see those, those in the audience and certainly, hopefully, those on the panel have gone to see four current art exhibitions. Um, I show little movies, I'm pairing them up, um, and after each movie, we have a discussion of those two shows amongst ourselves and then open things up to the audience with a chance uh, to, um, uh, for you to let off a little steam and to enrich the conversation even further with some more insights and opinions. So um, with no further ado, uh, we're ready for our, our first pair of movies. We're looking at uh, Yasumasa Morimoru's exhibition in the Room of Art History at Luring Augustine in Bushwick and at Pope L's One Thing After Another Part Two 
at Mitchell Innes and Nash in Chelsea. So, um, panellists, we can swivel round and see the movies ourselves. Yasamusa Moremora in the Room of Art History at Luring Augustine Bushwick offers a foretaste of the more extensive presentation that opened just last weekend at the Japan Society, Yasamusa Moremora Ego Obscura. Born in Osaka in 1951, Moriomura has been known since the 1980s for work in performance, photography and painting that places the artist himself in iconic Western images, whether old master paintings or movie stills, with meticulous restaging and elaborate cross-dressing. His subject choices are invariably heavy with political and cultural implications, steeped in Japanese history and Western colonialism, and the insight that, quote, Asia is a woman. The Japan Society brings together for the first time reworkings of Manet's Olympia from different stages in his career, in which Moriomura casts himself as both the courtesan and her black maid, and in the later version, switching out the maid for a bearded, top-hatted customer. Back in Bushwick, the historic works transcribed are by Van Gogh, Caravaggio, Vermeer and Magritte, while his earlier black and white series, 100M's Self-Portraits, 1993-2000, are massed in a salon hang and include drag interpretations of Marilyn Monroe, Marlena Dietrich, Audrey Hepburn and players from vintage porn. Pope L. reminds us, perhaps, that we don't have to go to Japan for either iconoclasm or for deconstructions of racist stereotype. He describes his exhibition at Mitchell, Innes and Nash as, quote, a disgustingly neat pile of doubt, experiment and denial, shoved up hot against claim, leap, gambit and caesura, your basic scrabbling about in the dark. Born in Newark, New Jersey in 1955 and a graduate of the Whitney Museum's Independent Study Program, William Pope L., as he was formerly known, was winner last year of the Buxbaum Award. Titled One Thing After Another Part Two, referencing a similarly titled recent museum show in France, his Chelsea exhibition includes a dozen of what he calls re-photo collages, as well as text-based pieces, and, at the heart of the gallery, a black box presentation of his frequently reworked film, Syllogism. In the words of a press release that betrays the artist's own input, quote, The video explores the rich and disruptive fantasy life behind deductive reasoning. Like systems of logic, social and political concepts are defined in relation to the group they serve, Syllogism stages these contours as blurred and soggy tropes of sex, power, and creme pie. Morimura, I've been aware of him for years and been flummoxed as to what it's all about. But having been to Japan recently and mugging up on him, uh, in research for preparation for this evening, rather than actually seeing the exhibitions, 
I would say, has opened up depths of fascination in, in this man and, and, and his project. But I'm still left by a kind of lacuna between the possible political and gender meanings uh, of what he's about and the craft and impact and lasting value of what he's doing. There's a, a bit of a disconnect between the visual impact, pleasurable though it may be, and the, the much more interesting things that can be said and written about everything he's doing than perhaps the thing itself. And I wonder if that's cruel and wrong, and if, if together we can tease out some more interesting connections and see what we all make of it. Um, Lila, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Um, let me put this question to you. Much of the critical, supportive literature on Marimura uh, focuses on issues of colonialism. Um, and, and yet, what's most striking is the element of masquerade, in particular of cross-dressing. Do you think that, do you think um, race and colonialism and politics are, uh, race and colonial politics are foremost in, in making sense of Morimura's project or personal identity and gender? Can one separate them? And do you have a sense of which is actually paramount? I like that you started with a light and uncomplicated question, David. <laughs> uh, um, that is a, it's, it's difficult for me to sort of sort this out from my scholarly training. I'm a very like early 2000s critical theory and post-colonial theory person. So my brain is very wired to say you absolutely cannot separate out the personal from the political and our colonial legacies are what make us who we are. That being said, that's not a terribly interesting or uh, lucrative line of inquiry. So I would say that for me, if there is something um, more generative or more exciting to be found in this work than what you identify as like simple initial visual appeal of it, it is actually dealing with that question. And if you take it from the point of view of, you know, the agency of the colonial subject and, you know, playing with the malleability of identity by reclaiming that agency in situating himself in the narrative and these masterpieces, sure, um, especially when the positions change over time. Um, there's, I think, some, some interesting things to parse there. At the same time, um, it, it, does, it can feel a bit like a one-trick pony, I think. Um, it's a, this initial spark of surprise, or that's interesting. The techne is rewarding, all of that. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it's a super rich argument beyond right, that. Right, right. Uh, Roberta, we've focused, because the show was open and we like to feature an exhibition in Brooklyn, on Luring Augustin Bushwick's exhibition, uh, which is of some recent 2016 tableau based on putting the artist in Western paintings, uh, coupled with, and it's helpful because it gives us the, the transgendering as well as the uh, historical perspective, his black and white 
um, American Icons series, um, uh, one, well, not necessarily, Western Icons series, um, 100 self-portraits, 100 M's. Um, in a way, the more kind of fulsome, rich, tantalizing uh, overlook of what he does is to be had at the uh, Japan Society, but that show just opened a couple of days ago. But I think it's useful for us to actually focus on the most recent work because it forces the issue, I think, of um, sustainability, of, of what is it that keeps him really engaged um, in, almost, in, in almost kind of archaeological reconstructions and deconstructions of images, and what does it ultimately mean for us? Um, do, do you have a feeling about his, his fastidiousness, his craft? Do I have to, <clears throat> do I have to answer that? We've, you've done this ten times. You know, I know. You I'm know just here to talk about the show. I'm, not... I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to ignore it and tell me what you think of the show. But I thought it was... When you come for the eleventh time, I'm going to say, Roberta, what do you think of the show? Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, I thought that the show was very tired and very thin, and that it wasn't really enough to schlep out to Bushwick for. Even, and I didn't have time to go to other galleries, so that was a problem. Um, I... The most interesting, I, ha I haven't seen the show at Japan Society, but I have, did look at the catalog, and he, you know, just reading him writing about his work is extremely interesting. Mm. And he puts it in very personal terms. He grew up in, in post-war Japan. He, he fell in love with the occupier, with American culture, and I guess ultimately with, with Western art in a way. Um, I... I, I do agree that it's kind of a one-trick pony, and there, you know, there, there are all kinds of people, of artists, none of whom I can recall at the minute, at the moment, who do this, who kind of construct something and then take a photograph. I still find myself kind of getting, entering into them and figuring out what what's going on. Like in the Van Gogh, the way he was quoting a portrait of himself dressed as a portrait of Van Gogh, so that. In the portrait, he, he wears a blue garment, and it went down to here, and then the rest of the suit was just brown, like it's real life. And you gradually understand that everything you're looking at is actually painted. He hasn't just put, put this together like a stage set. He's actually tried to make it not look like a painting, because it's very messy and weird. But um, I don't know. You, I, just, I just look at the making of it, which kind of surprises me. And in the Vermeer one, those were the two that interested me the most because in the Vermeer, you realize that the painting on the easel, the picture on the wall of the real painting yes. is not the real painting. It's him again. And the wall in that room with the big, beautiful map on it is actually the same wall that's in the studio. And, um, you know, he's just... Well, like most artists, he's sort of making you look and making you think about how it's made, and then you can get into his relationship. He's, he's, I don't know, he's always kind of subverting something. You know, it may not be this paradigmatic issue, but he is, he is subverting your experience and the kind of finishedness of art. And, for example, when he's the woman at the table, you know, looking like he... Oh, it's so complicated. Um, posing at the table, he's actually posing with the disassembled painting. 
the things that she's holding in the real painting are just lying there beside in the books, the whatever that brass instrument is, the wreath of flowers, of leaves that's on her hair is not there, but it's been outlined on the little faux canvas. So I go back and forth. Sometimes I just think it's like, and, and I really got bored by looking at the kind of whatever, Cindy Sherman, Hollywood uh, portraits, you know. I mean, I thought, well, maybe he, maybe he can explain each and every one of those. Like, this is Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. This is the same picture of Bergman, him as Bergman, combined with a picture of him as Bogart in Casablanca. You know, so I was more interested in the ones that I could kind of work with, and then there were just too many that didn't really ring a bell. Right, right. Um, thank you. Barry, um, do, do you feel that... Um, do you feel that the artist is, is, is sustaining the energy of his initial impulse to deconstruct in, in exalted kind of gender and, and colonial terms, or is, is he... Do you think of him more of as a craftsman who's, who's engaged in a very multi-layered way with constructions of specific images? First of all, I want to separate the issue of gender from the issue of colonialism. And uh, I'm really not very convinced by the supposed content to do with colonialism, uh, you know, maybe because I remind myself that even though, uh, you know, in fact, uh, perhaps when he was growing up, Japan was an occupied uh, country, uh, you know, as anyone from Korea or China would be happy to remind us, Japan was an imperial power that was itself and an occupier. And, and, and as he is very anxious to remind us as well. Okay, well, he may remind in the text, which uh, I don't know, but he doesn't remind us in, uh-huh. in the photographs. So I don't think that that is, um, you know, I don't think that's handled really in, in the content of the images. What is handled, yes, is just the idea of the kind of desire of the other, whether it's the other gender or another ethnic or national identity. But uh, um, that's, that's a different thing from colonialism, which is a much more, mm. you know, kind of particular kind of topic. Um, it's interesting to me, I kind of had the opposite feeling to Roberta uh, in that I was more taken by the black and white, and yes, very Cindy Sherman-esque, often uh, photographs, um, which I had no idea about. The others, you know, the big color tableau are more closely related to the things I know of his from the past. Uh, I didn't know about those small black and white pictures. And uh, I really felt that, at least with some of them, the simplicity of the means, the fact that it was really just the face and the clothing and the makeup in very tight framing uh, that I could 
you know, it's almost like you can, well, not the ones that are way up on the wall, but the ones <laughs> that you see can them. see, uh, you know, uh, by... It was a nice the, variation. Like, sometimes it was just him. Yeah, you know, and you him. could, you know, there's that kind of, in a sense, identification of, well, okay, you know, who is this? What does he desire? What does he want? What does it have to do with me as a viewer? And so on. And uh, that, for me, was more is more interesting than the almost puzzle-like question of how uh, these tableaux are constructed uh, for the most part. Although, although I do think that the, the, the Vermeer one was, had, uh, I don't know, had, had a kind of poignancy to it that was a little bit more than, than a lot of the other pieces. Yeah, they, they, they have um, initially an energy of like heavy high production and um, uh, maybe in the sort of Gregory Crudson mold or, um, and, and certainly among, you know, construct, constructing photographers, people like Casabir and um, um, uh, 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 Thomas Demand. Thomas Demand or, or, or Simon, uh, Simmons. Laurie Simmons would come to mind, um, mother of Lena, Lena, Dunham's, Lena Dunham's wife, mother. Yeah, Laurie Simmons. Simmons. Thank yeah. you, Laurie Simmons. Um, but but as 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 Roberta was I, I has very successfully demonstrated, I think when when we look at more in, in more complexity of the the Van Gogh image and 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 the Vermeer, uh, either fidelities or liberties with the original. Um, mean that there isn't actually a, a kind of fixed rote um, procedure going on. That um, it, it's it, it, and, but I wonder though whether it's the artist himself keeping busy or really involving us in some drama of simulacrum and uh, reconstruction and um, working one's way into the image. Um, you, you talked of it being a one-trick pony to some extent, uh, Lila. Um, but do, do you feel that um, his uh, renegotiations with each image uh, keep the project lively? Well, I want to come back to what you said about if he's drawing us in. And I would say that everybody probably in this room and sitting up here could certainly make a case for ways in which it might be interesting, but I don't think that the work is doing that lifting for us. Right, right. So it's a bit of a slick product. And it's high fructose, that's what I thought a lot. When I was oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's sort of sad in a way because he's, he has been doing this now for over 30 years and, you, and there's, there doesn't seem to be anything else and he's... It's strange because you can also see him physically growing older. Like in the Vimeo, I was very aware of that. And, you know, he's, it seems sort of a little trapped, I guess. Yes, he, a frog jumping out of a pond halfway each time. That, that um, it sort of, it feels, uh, yeah, that, that he gets busier and busier with, with formal details in order to, but to keep alive... Um, this bigger project, um, but I think it's also a timely reminder that it's a, it's an interesting project. I mean, somehow. I mean, um, but uh, one one should also project <coughs> slash product acknowledge 
and it's a, to my mind, a limitation, not a strength, but the extent to which he has become an institution um, and, and will um, uh, send particular works to particular places to, to, to resonate in those locales, um, mm. um, a, a different kind of marketing of his work in Japan and Europe and America um, for, for critical or less critical audiences. Um, but one energy really is the performative. Um, it, you know, what come across, comes across as if, if you get to Japan society is how important performance um, and, and much more pointed and political um, performance in his early work um, has been, but then how, how much his preparing himself for these tableaux is, is, um, seems to be the... the um, is such a factor in what's going on that we are seeing these frozen images which are um, records of an ongoing performance of sorts. <laughs> but then perhaps the, the cross-dressing is not as personal as it would be with a non-Japanese artist in a way because of the resonances within... Uh, Japanese theatrical and masquerade traditions of um, cross-dressing um, and this sort of implied political purpose behind it as well. Does that, um, does that make sense? Does, is, he, is he playing to a very particular um, either Japanese tradition or perception of Japanese tradition in um, foregrounding the cross-dressing aspect? Does that mean? Is that a Japanese uh, perception of Japanese tradition or a Western <laughs> perception of Japanese tradition that you're talking about? Well, that's, uh, that's, why I, that's why I separated them out into the Japanese tradition being from the Japanese perspective and the perception of the Japanese tradition from the non-Japanese uh, but I mean, it's 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 just as much a mere perception in Japan as it is anywhere else. It's art, you know an artificially produced uh, impression just like any anything else in culture it's cultivated and uh, uh, you know has its own political yeah. uh, uses in that in that situation yes well he writes so you in, can't that, in that book he writes about Japan vis-a-vis -vis America being forced into a kind of female role mm. and being the wife you know and he has a picture of He's plays both MacArthur and Hirohito in one photograph. Yes. I don't know how he got up there for MacArthur, but anyway. Um, and he sees that as a marriage. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I, I think that... he sets it in his parents' tea shop in right. Osaka. But I think that... So cross-dressing is almost like a, a, a given for him, you know, a permanent state that he... I mean, sometimes he's, he's male, of course, but that... I don't know. I just wonder, like, when he gets up in the morning, does he? What does he do? <laughs> Who am I? But yeah, I mean, Who you could say today? that he's cross-dressing as a man in the Magritte ah. one. I mean, I think in a way that's what you're getting at. It's a cross-dressing either well, it's way. Racial, he racially cross-dresses in very in, in all kinds of different directions, mm -hmm. you know, too. So I don't know. It's it's when you when you look at it, it's kind of dense. He's got this thing structured and. But you have to go to it 
it doesn't just grab you. Mm-hmm. I think that's the state we've gotten to with this long a career, this kind of steady, with, the, with the, this handful of interests, mm-hmm. you know, other people's pictures. Yes. Other people's pictures, other people's images, other personages, um, and um, other traditions of processing images. I, I'm, I'm perhaps being sentimental with so, an artist who's so um, overtly theoretical and political, but just wondering where is the, where is the, um, where is the real Yasser Musa in all of this? Is, is, um, that's why I'm sort of teasing out this, the sense of um, uh, uh, cross-dressing not being sort of inherent to the, 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 the person, but um, much more um, uh, tapping in, in, into a specific um, vein of, of Japanese masquerade. And, um, and also wondering, you know, the, the title of the exhibition at Japan Society, um, uh, Ego Obscura, um, it's, it's, it's perhaps Cindy Sherman-esque to put oneself in every image and actually none of them really be self-portraits. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you, Lila? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Cindy Sherman thing is clear, but I want to go back to the gender question. I don't want to belabor the point, but to Roberta's um, point about um, casting the sort of Japanese person as the wife in this well, marriage. Like his country, basically. Yes. Oh, the, yes. Yeah. Um, it's a very common trope in literature since forever mm-hmm. um, for the country, specifically the occupied or captive country, to be framed as feminine. And to me, um, that framing suggests, in fact, a deeply traditional and not terribly adventurous Mm. relationship to gender that would belie um, what we might expect from something, you know, soi-disant transgressive, like cross-dressing. In fact, it's a kind of real simple on and off switch that Mm. I'm I'm being not generous, but I just don't find it terribly interesting at the end of the day. I think comparing him to Sherman and, and, and a thing that I do like about the black and white things is that his seams are always showing. Mm-hmm. Sherman does really create masquerade, and you and, and in some of her images you can't see her. Mm-hmm. But I always feel like you can see him, and that he's sort of he's very sly about it, you know. And he, I mean, I, I think it, he probably does as much as he can to look like what he's trying to look like, but it, it still gives him pleasure that he doesn't quite get there, mm-hmm. and um, that. I mean, that's, pro- that's probably what I take away with it, is some kind of, I don't know, humor, where he's laughing at us and himself. And um, Yes, I, the way I read it, though, is it's more like a sort of Banruku performance where um, you, you see both the doll and the people moving the doll, and that, that mm-hmm. there's no attempt to uh, create a kind of mimesis illusion that 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 um, in fact the the structure uh, the, manif- the structures manifest and that, so in, in a way that would that would speak to also uh, the lack of ego in the work that um, that he is there being Marilyn but he's also there to make sure that 
we see that it's him, that it's being Marilyn, it's not, we're not taken in that it's Marilyn, as it were. So uh, these, these um, structures of artifice maintain. Just out of curiosity, what you think about this, you know, with the black and white photographs, and of course there were many in which I immediately recognized, yes, Audrey Hepburn, uh, Marlene Dietrich, and so on, but there were many where my depth of uh, cultural knowledge was not sufficient, and I mm. couldn't catch a particular reference, uh, uh, but I didn't necessarily feel that those uh, pieces were any less um, touching, in a way. Uh, do you, do you th how important do you think it is that, that these references be part of it? And if, and if it's not that important, uh, maybe doesn't that point to the possibility that all the, the kind of more elaborate machinery of the, the big pieces is sort of not really worth the effort because the, there's an essential thing in the work uh, that doesn't have anything to do with that. With what? With with the commentary commentary on oh, a particular yeah. subject. Yeah, you could feel that in some of the books. It's like he's just doing some kind of melange or something. Like the hair is like that, and he's sort of, you know, it's. I agree with that. Actually, I take back what I said about wanting an explanation. Yeah, I mean, m most of them are. Um, either self-explicating or one can dig and find or be told. Um, but the, the fact that there are some that aren't suggests actually that if they work, that's a, that's a, a sign of redemption. That's a, a, a refreshing sign that as they can be compelling as images without the kind of um, um, hermeneutics that go with this kind of rather clever, layered, referential work. Cool. Well, clever hermeneutic references. I wonder if that uh, will carry us across to uh, Pope L. We're ready for the second loop um, uh, with Greg and company. Um, so um, here the very title of the exhibition is, is referential to the extent of telling us that it's part two. And we might wonder, oh, is it worth seeing part two? We haven't seen part one. Should we wait for part one? So it's the dilemma of anyone on Netflix with a, a season uh, that's uh, upon one too early. Um, but no, it's, um, it seems to be for his own private um, or archival purposes. And pretty much with any Pope L, once one is thrown in, one is in. Um, uh, very intriguingly... Um, emotionally and physically um, messy artist uh, Barry, despite his proclamations of uh, um, being, uh, um, despite those proclamations of being disgustingly neat. Um, we're, we're committing the cardinal sin, panelists, of, of, of sitting with our back to the audience. This is the, uh, we don't want the Tridentine mass, we want the post-Vatican II mass. We have to look at our um, audience <laughs> um, and let the images do their own. Maybe we could put up the lights. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I don't that like this be. uneven yes. thing. Yes, that's more democratic. That reminds us that there are real people yeah. who are going to have opinions listening, and that's, that's much nicer. Thank you for that intervention. Um, yeah, so Barry, um, 
Did you find the show to be disgustingly neat? Uh, it was it was neither neat nor disgusting, um, but uh, you know it was funny after uh, the second time that I went back to see the show, I was trying to remember uh, a joke that I heard a long time ago that the show reminded me of. And I can't exactly remember it properly, but I remember it basically. So imagine this joke being much funnier, but basically the same. <laughs> and it was a joke about two psychoanalysts, two psychoanalysts, and they, you know, they happen to pass by walking down the street, and one says hello to the other one. And the other one says to himself, I wonder what he meant by that. And, uh, you know, I felt like, uh, I felt like the viewer or, and the artist were both kind of two people who are both suspicious of each other's meaning, no matter how ordinary or, you know, in fact, the more ordinary and banal it is, the more it must be hidden. Uh, the anxiety the, that I must be missing something because this is not anybody, this is Popel. Well, because um, there's so much, there's so much blatancy combined with so much hermeticness. You know, there's like think there, there's there's lots of text everywhere, and you know, so you think that you're going to read something and be told something, and and the text is nonsense, or yes. sometimes uh, you know, and then sometimes the nonsense uh, echoes something that. Uh, might actually be grammatically and sem semantically uh, correct, but then you don't know whether the correct version is really the fake of the nonsensical one, or the nonsensical one is the degeneration or the fake or whatever of the of the one that made sense. Um, and even the uh, even actually the the checklist of the show didn't quite make sense to me in the sense that. Uh, there's the there's that sock puppet that's torn up and thrown oh, yeah. around uh, in different places. Curious George, yeah. but it's uh, it's only assigned to one of those post uh, mm. pieces. But actually, bits of it are for part of each one, and then but then they're not acknowledged by the by the checklist. Uh, so I thought even the checklist he's making uh, part of his instrumentality of doubt and skepticism and, uh, you know, it, who's playing a trick on who. Yes, so the subversion is never-ending. Um, uh, Roberta, uh, do you feel... Tell me what you think of the show, Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd rather you... I'm kind of in a bind. This time you want a question. Well, yes. my problem is I didn't get back for my second viewing. So I looked mostly at the collages, which I really like, and I find really kind of uh, accusatory and beautiful and very distinct. You know, I'm just amazed by how many artists still find stuff to do with collage. Like, it doesn't... It just keeps going. Mm. And... Um, and... So, you know, I, I, I go up and down with his work a lot. There are certain things that I don't like. There are certain things that take me a long time to like. And 
I don't have much more to say than that. I mean, I really loved that last show at Mitchell and Mitchell Snash where they had the, the kind of a, a small survey of his drawings going back to early work and um, just seeing how involved he is with paper, you know, and which, which is also operating here where he has the bags and the boxes. And, but I don't think I have enough to contribute much. Well, that's 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 definitely a start, and um, I'm sure that as you hear more opinions, you'll you'll want to jump back in, um, Lila. Um, okay, I'll say one more thing. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> the negative part was having had such an intense experience with his previous show. Hmm. My initial rea- reaction, and it's only that, so I could take it back. But that, was that. He, he was a little bit in production, that right. there was a lot of that, you know, that, that was just that there didn't need to quite be so much work. But that's, maybe that's not the case. Maybe I wouldn't think that. But sometimes I, sometimes I feel like, oh, well, well, you know, there's been real success, real recognition here, and now there's a, a little bit of riding on it. But perhaps the, the exhibition itself is a collage and, and it requires that access in order to pull off as, as the event that it is. It's not just um, to, to guide us around some individual collages and bags of stuff and torn up sock monkeys, but it's also... Um, the... Well, he likes to be relentless. Yes, yes. And he's certainly relentless by the time you get inside the box and, and see the video, Lila, um, the cream pie, uh, the creme pie. Um, my first exposure to Popel was uh, reading uh, 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 a passionate screed he'd written on the subject of mayonnaise, which I could not for the life of me get my head around. And I wondered who this guy was and what his problem was with mayonnaise. Um, it's but white. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, you're saying? I, yeah. Are you saying? Uh, yes. May- okay, I thought you said mayonnaise. Like, I, which mayonnaise? <laughs> Olympia or. Uh, uh, oh, sorry. No, 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 not, not mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise. In, in Europe, we say mayonnaise, but. Uh, <laughs> mayonnaise, we say mayonnaise. But um, oh. you know, that's, that's where it gets about more than one mayonnaise. Yes. Yeah, all right. Mayonnaise. <laughs> yes. But not mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise. Yes. Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, um, and so this was way before he got into bologna. Yes, yes. Pre bologna, it was mayo. Okay. It was. Um, um, but uh, there's no mayo or bologna in this show. But in, unless. The, but there's a cream pie. So, um, Lila. Um, um, uh, is, he, is he true to form? Is he in good form with this show? Um, uh, is there a Morimura effect of um, um, uh, relentlessly plowing one field? Uh, there's relentlessness, but I, I think it's quite the opposite of a one-trick pony. Um, I will say that um, when we were talking in the green room about you know, when you feel, and if some people feel an idea is formed when they write it, some people when they speak it, hmm. I usually need to like talk things through to sort of get at where I'm going. And Popel is extremely difficult for me to talk about and form a cogent sentence about, but I know that I love his work and it's the best. 
Um, I will say also that one of the most legible things I find about him is his aversion to mayonnaise. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, with this show, I think he's true to form in as much as you can ever say that about him, which is that it is surprising. It is hard to wrap my head around. I know that there's some real intellectual rigor and like gear turning going on specifically with the way he uses text. Um, it sort of has like a Alice in Wonderland effect without the symmetry, the way he uses text. Because like if you sit with a Lewis Carroll thing for long enough, it's math and there will be a logic and you'll find a solution. And here you have the sense that it's some kind of, you're like, that's like almost an anagram or like I almost recognize that form, but not quite. And that sort of always grasping at what you intuit to be an internal logic to the work is what keeps it exciting, but also totally inscrutable. Yeah. Yeah. I can vouch for its inscrutability. Um, but I leave the excitement to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Roberta, what, what generally, not, not necessarily focusing exclusively on this exhibition, but with Popel in general, um, wherein lies the real excitement for you? You've, you've mentioned your his it's kind of, of paper, but chewing up the scenery of popular culture and imagery and just like these things, just looking at them, yeah. you know, the way he's the way his idea of finish and his attention to detail combined, because he's not really that interested in finish. And oh. and the way they're I don't know, I just think he has this he you know, he's really a very obstreperous subversive artist who has his own version of a great touch, I think. And he's, he's really great with materials. And it, it didn't, I mean, I remember when he was, remember those sheets of paper talking about white people in different colored inks that he showed at Haradner, Haradner, whatever it was? Romley? And I remember just like, you know, that and about the same time you see the Superman videos, which are just excruciating and weird, and why is he humiliating himself? I mean, you got, it's, you have very mixed reactions to that. Um, I, I think he's one of the best artists working right now. For, for, for being unfinished and being inscrutable? Or, or, or? No, I don't, think he's, I don't think he's totally inscrutable. I just think it takes a really long time that these things are... I wasn't so nuts about those, but I think the collages are sort of rebuses, you know, and you, you have to kind of, they're not, it's not just all on the surface. You know, you, I don't know. I, it's interesting that you, you said he's one of the most interesting artists working right now, um, and, and, and you said there's something just incredible about him, but you can't, you can never put your finger on it. Um, it seems there's a mystique then around an artist, or, or, or else, or I mean, because you know we're all critics, we we have to sort out why we think things, don't we? And I'm, so I'm I'm a little perplexed as to why somebody who's so um, seems to my mind uh, self-indulgent and scruffy and pointless, um, why it is that there's uh, such a, a cult around him, and yet the the priests of this cult can't. Give us any liturgy. We're not priests and we're not a cult. All right. Yeah. I, but so I, I think, I mean, an, an interesting thing to think about is the 
the feeling that it gives. You used the word accusatory, um, excruciating um, when talking about the Superman videos. And I think that part of what draws um, admirers, yes. not cultists, sure, sure. is um, <laughs> that there is there is always an immediate visceral grabbing that results either from the simple elements of constructing a performance or from the way images and materials are combined and presented to the viewer, always. It's very visceral. Um, it's very, it, it, it makes you feel a little anxious. I think the accusatory thing is right. It's like there's something you ought to be thinking about and considering. And I think being put on the spot that way is a very activating experience for a viewer and it makes you, you know, want to think and engage and, and parse out the logic of how it's put together, which is what really good artworks do. It's funny, though, that you used two words that I, I think should go together, but people often don't put them together. First, you talked about feeling and then you talked about logic. And, you know, I think there's this problem of how to articulate the logic of a feeling. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think what you called, in, uh, I think you called it, David, inscrutability, or whoever used that word. Uh, inscrutability is definitely the signifier of genius. You know, if you can, if you can be convincingly inscrutable, then, you, then people think you must be a genius because you know something they don't know. And, but who really, you know, who's really the genius or not? Well, in art, the only proof of it is, and again, I'm going to quote a term that somebody else uses in what Roberta calls the touch. I mean, I think uh, for those who are convinced by either his work as a whole or at least by certain works of his, and I'm in, I think, the, the second group, the ones who are convinced by certain works of his, um, you know, there's a kind of uh, tactile and judgmental rightness uh, to just how things are put together. And, and, of course, collage is sort of the most mm. visible... Uh, Example, but he's in such of that. large and distinguished and ongoing company when it comes to uh, an accusatory accumulation of not very easily readable and uh, not very finished and very scruffy at the edges. And uh, uh, I mean, all the way from the combines of Rauschenberg through to Ryan Tricartin videos via David Hammonds and, and any number of peers and points of contact. So um, what is it that's, make, that's so particular and unique about, about his tapping this, this inscrutability or this scruffiness or this uh, uh, abrasiveness or this accusatory tone? I don't know. I don't, I don't exactly... I don't see the accusatory part so much. Uh, um, somebody said accusatory. Yeah, somebody did, but I, I don't... I, that's, not the, that's not the feeling... Hmm. that I get. The I don't forget the feeling of he's an indignant prophet, for instance. I don't see him as um, railing against something, apart from mayonnaise. I don't see him as a railer against... Uh, of course, he's dealing with issues of race and stereotypes, so therefore we go with the expectation that, uh, as an African-American guy dealing with uh, the well, racial stereotypes, he must be 
uh, deeply motivated and deeply upset and deeply, you know, and we, he should be leading us in a, in a, in a protest. But um, I'm not sure it's a very focused or illuminating protest. Um, so is he, I mean, you, you, you talked about inscrutability being a sign of genius, and geniuses have a lot in common with madmen. And so, um, you know, uh, those of us in the middle are not geniuses and try, not, try to be sane and, and, and conf- have bourgeois conformity and logic uh, to, to keep us going and convention. So if, if you've opted for that kind of genius look, mm-hmm. uh, I'm getting the sense of... Um, uh, reverence and intrigue at the, um, uh, the the alchemy, I guess it would be, of his uh, of his touch, and and his sensibility and his thoughtfulness. Um, but I, I'd love to be sort of taken through an image to sh- to be shown, uh, or or a film or a, or a whole experience of an installation, to be to to be shown some kind of journey that the. Um, the happy viewer of this went through. Well, you, you told us we're not allowed to say stop the image okay. there. And we'll, okay. so. <laughs> um, that's, that's true, but I mean, I, uh, you could remind us of a title or, a, or, or um, uh, listen, it's a challenge, it's out there. If it, maybe, maybe I feel sometimes it might be something sort of almost uh, not, I'm not allowed to use the word cult, but it's a bit, but like a, a Masonic lodge that has this kind of um, uh, code going on that uh, keep the Gentile out by not divulging the meaning to these strange antics. Um, maybe there's something of that going on. I'm not sure. I think it will be a good time anyway to bring in our audience unless someone else on the panel is bursting to try to illuminate the subject. Um, so we've got uh, two exhibitions to talk about, panel, and we'll have mics going around so that uh, we are recording, and so please do wait for the mic before uh, opining. And uh, those of you new to the review panel, um, a particular idiosyncrasy of mine, I, I leave the campaign against Mayo to Pope L, but my Michigas is that whereas um, usually moderators say, I want a question, please. No opinions. Uh, Cohen is the other way around. I don't want any questions. I only want opinions. So um, do not say, would the panel please talk about X, Y, Z? We don't have time. And um, we've said what we want to say. So audience, it's your chance. On either show, just jump in. Uh, Pope L or Morimura, front this gentleman here. It seems to me that the structure of Pope's show is uh, making a comment about our our culture, our lives, the way we live, the chaos that we're in, the the constant bombardment of things that we're always seeing, pieces, bits here, internet, television, you know, all of it. It seems like he's making a comment about that. Right. The, the overload of the information age and the the pollution of uh, overproduction. Thank you. That's, that's, that's a read for sure. Pass it to this gentleman. So I do have a question, but it's rhetorical. So uh, with, with Mori uh, Moore, um, you uh, many of you talked about um, him uh, being a one-trick pony and relentlessly ploughing the same field, as if that were necessarily a bad thing, as if perfecting a particular form 
over decades and decades um, and refining it and uh, changing it were necessarily a bad thing. So it seems to me that that might be a particularly American point of view to insist that an artist keep you entertained by changing the form of their art. And perhaps you're doing exactly what he's talking about in his works. That's, that's why American artists produce such great changeable entertainers as Agnes Martin, uh, Mark Rothko, and uh, so on. Uh. Um, I, I think, that's a, I think you, you raise like a, an interesting distinction that should be made, um, which is like, you know, if you want to think about perfecting one practice over time, you can think of an artist like Ankawara, who I think is a wonderful artist. And that work has, you know, even less variation than this, mm. but is the meticulous and thoughtful refinement of a form and a practice over a lifetime. To me, the sort of conceptual richness and the philosophical interest and, yes, the aesthetic effect of that work is richer and more nuanced than this body of work that we've seen. So the the critique is not that he hasn't dazzled me by, like, becoming a metal sculptor. Like, the critique is that it's the same experience over and over and that that experience does not merit repetition to that extent. Comparing them two is a bit like comparing uh, a Zen rock garden to uh, a kabuchi play or something. I, I mean, he, it seems to me that... Uh, Morimaro is is is, is um, although politically structured and 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 interesting in quotes um, is actually much more um, of a popular sop. Um, Sorry, much more of a much more populist. Oh, uh-huh. um, yeah. Um, in a, but but that in a perfectly acceptable way. Um, uh, so we've had Pope L as 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 uh, giving us the chaos of the world. Any any some 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 more comments? Yes, uh, uh, Robert Morgan, who's been on the panel in the past. Uh, good evening, David. So uh, I got here late. I'm sorry about that, but I was delighted to hear the comments on Pope L. <laughs> He's been an artist that I have been. Uh, thinking about and sometimes writing about for over 20 years. I think it's very important to uh, understand that he was a student of Ed Bullens, who was a a dramatist, uh, I think up in uh, Vermont someplace. And uh, I think that's essential to understanding his so-called tactile sensory perceptions and all that that was talked about in the panel. Uh, I remember that piece extremely well uh, what Roberta mentioned, the Haradna Romley Gallery, um, he was trying to make uh, Pepto-Bismol on a table in front of him uh, levitate. He, he was doing a kind of mock meditation, shall we say. It was very theatrical. And it was, I believe, for three consecutive days, day and night, I'm talking about. He never essentially left the couch. Maybe it was like Joseph Boyce never leaving the cage, but in fact he did. Uh, But the point is that when I saw it day and night, he was sitting on the couch staring at this bottle of milk and magnesia, and of course nothing was levitating. But it gave me something that was very special, and that was he understood 
the sense of the absurd in art. And that is really a European idea. I suppose it's primarily a French idea. But it was magnificent, absolutely magnificent. And I never lost faith in him, although I've equivocated in terms of what he has done since. But I think that he is the real deal. Right. Such a large audience, and yet such a reticent one. But sometimes we'll have a third the number of people here, and we can't wrest the mic away from you. Yes. Um, about uh, Pope L, I, I, you know, I think that the work is about futility, and just hearing Robert Morgan talk about that a little bit, uh, the Pepto-Bismol scenario sounds in keeping with that. And a lot of these works in this show seem that way as well. And... Um, I, I first knew of his work at Skowhegan when uh, I was there at the same time, and it was 1996, and he dug a hole in the summertime. It was a, like a hot day, and he climbed inside the hole and, uh, and buried himself, basically. And there wasn't much of an audience, you know, but I always remembered that work. And I think that he's special. You know, I think, I think there's something about what he's doing that is unlike anyone else. Um, it's, it can be hard to put your finger on it, but I think he's really good. <laughs> so. Well, the number of fingers aimed in his direction means that somebody eventually will put a finger on it. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Getting these um, affirmations of the hidden genius... The secret genius. Another comment on either exhibition? Morimura? Pope L? Uh, yes. Uh, but I, That's I, what you think. <laughs> uh, not have made well, not have made with good eggs and olive oil. Yes, gentlemen in the front row. Yeah, I sometimes get the feeling that the panel is asking the artist to explain the work. The work is there. Not the panelists asking the artists to explain the work, like doing something twice. Well, I'm asking the panel to explain it to themselves and to me and to you. I'm not asking the artists to explain it because we're not, by, it's not by, explication. By, by, by the direction of the comments, you're asking the artists to explain the work twice. Well, then we're all here under a misapprehension because <laughs> this, is a, this is criticism, and criticism is about bringing... Um, personal responses and analysis and probing of different minds to a body of work um, and teasing between ourselves and interacting with ourselves to, to, to arrive at some either consensus or interesting difference of opinion that will um, create some, uh, some conversation around the work to help others see it and read it. Now, that's not to say, uh, you know, what exactly is this work saying? And as if the work could and should have been written as a telegram. Um, because, of course, we, I think, I hope we all realize that it's art. And if it could do that, it would be a failure as art. But that doesn't mean that there isn't, isn't something worth talking about. And if two people on a panel say, I don't know what it means, uh, I, I don't know what he's really doing, um, but I just feel it, that's, as it were, to my mind, a sort of defeat of criticism. Um, although it's, a, it's an honest acknowledgement of art 
transcending uh, verbiage, which, which I think goes to the point you're making. Yeah. Um, good. Oh, yes, there's one more comment I'll take in the middle of the, middle of the room. Good evening. Uh, my comment is about the Popel uh, show and about uh, inscrutability and, um, and, 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 and racial politics in America and, and how that manifests itself in art. Um, and I'll begin with what I promise is a very short anecdote. Uh, I went to a liberal arts college in Vermont um, and I took an African-American literature class there. Um, and in that class, as was the case in many classes at uh, this college, uh, there was one African-American student uh, in the class. And pretty much every meeting, it would get to the point uh, of our discussion where there would be something um, in the text that was so um, connected to the African-American experience that the class would uh, turn to this young woman like this at a certain point, almost without fail. Um, and in one meeting, uh, kind of in the middle of the semester, she expressed very, very beautifully how exhausting that was, what a feeling of responsibility it was um, that uh, it kind of always fell to her. Um, and I was thinking about that a lot kind of when I, when I saw this, this show uh, actually today. Um, and I think maybe if, if we were trying to put our finger on uh, what's so moving about that inscrutability, um, it is kind of a uh, a very bold, in a way, refusal to try to make sense of it for us, for the art viewing public, um, which I, I think is a, a very moving expression of power and, and personal expression to um, to not sort of be forced into making that defining statement, um, which is again very very personal. Uh, that was part of what, what kind of uh, moved me towards the work. Yeah, thank you very much. That, that anecdote, I think, is, 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 is valuable and very useful. But I, I would stress that um, I, for one, am not looking for uh, a solution to an equation. Um, um, it, it's, it, we, we want our art to be unresolvable and messy at the edges. Well, you're contradicting yourself because you just said that to say something that you didn't understand something was a failure of criticism, which it's not. But it seems okay now. <laughs> <laughs> to have a definitive explanation as to what something has to mean is one thing, but, but simply to say, um, unless it's unless you're really confronting the sublime and saying, I'm overwhelmed and I can't extricate myself from the experience of inscrutability to stand aside and say what it might mean. Um, even if he were saying that, you would be able to describe somehow how this, how being overwhelmed by this scenery with a waterfall is different from being overwhelmed by that house burning down, and that they're different experiences. So I don't, I don't, even without coming to a neat solution to an equation, one can nonetheless use the actual experience of the actual work to, characteri to, to characterize um, what's happening with that aesthetic experience that puts you in a particular mood of, of, of being baffled, you see? I, I, I don't think one can just simply say, 
take my word for it, this is a genius, and I don't know what he's doing. Nobody has said that. Well, listen to the tape afterwards, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounded a little like it in moments. But anyway, um, uh, cool. Um, I think we'll... This, this underlying issue of aesthetics and art criticism will no doubt surface again as we deal with uh, Charlene von Heil and um, uh, Frank Bowling. But before we do, I'd just like to say one thing, uh, in case anyone didn't get the memo. Well, there was no memo, really. But just to say that we are very generously supported by the art committee of One Grand Army Plaza that uh, is, a, is, a, is a beautiful apartment house just over the road on uh, Eastern Parkway that uh, currently has an exhibition um, of um, um, Anne Delaporte, a French artist. And we are all invited. The entire congregation is invited to uh, a drink and a nibble um, at One Grand Army Plaza after the event. Uh, many in the audience know the way there, so if you don't, just follow people who look like they know where they're going. And um, I guarantee interesting art and refreshing beverages um, from the very generous One Grand Army Plaza. Good. So we're ready for our second video now, and we're going to see the second pair of exhibitions. Frank Bowling, Make It New, is veteran British abstract painter Frank Bowling's first exhibition with Alexander Gray Associates. Born in British Guyana in 1934, the artist moved as a teenager to London, where he now lives and works. Part of the legendary intake of students at the Royal College of Art that included David Hockney and R.B. Kitai, Bowling was celebrated early for realist paintings fusing elements of abstraction and pop, like the much-admired Mirror, 1966. During time in New York, he introduced what we might now call conceptual abstraction, with a repeated motif of the map of South America. A protege of Clement Greenberg, his experimental approach towards impasto entails daring use of texture and color. Recently, his work has garnered critical and curatorial attention for its ability to infuse abstraction with geopolitical concerns that relate to his Caribbean upbringing and to the African diaspora. But according to Bowling, I do not want to illustrate anything but to make the paint dance. The paint does its own thing, spreads and bleeds, and then suggests images. Born in Mainz, Germany in 1960, Charlene von Heil moved to New York in 1994 and now divides time between studios in Brooklyn and Marfa, Texas. A student and later an assistant to Jörg Immendorf, she was part of an anarchic generation of Hamburg artists that included her friend Albert Olin. In a recent interview with Jason Farrago, von Heil admits to being a fetishist, explaining that, quote, satisfaction comes out of charging objects with something. A fetishization is completely mood-dependent and completely arbitrary. It's a net of synchronicities and associations. The paintings are almost the conclusion of a series of steps of fetishistic projections which want to find a voice. 
but she also insists that she's no formalist, that she does not make paintings about painting. Quote, the materials that give me the means to make the paintings are basically the only things that I'm not fetishistic about. Neither the act of painting itself, nor the materials I'm using, nor the history of those materials is in the least interesting for me. What interests me is how the painting in the end conveys a new image. This is Charlene von Heil's ninth exhibition with Petzel. And thank you to all the galleries for providing images and support and in some cases being very generous with literature uh, to me and I hope other panellists in uh, doing our homework for this uh, review panel. Um, Frank Bowling. Roberta, tell me what you think of Frank Bowling. I like the show. I used to not like his work. I don't, I don't like the more obvious things that he was doing, uh, which I remember from the 70s when he lived here. Yeah. And was quite intimidating, I thought. I don't know. I remember knowing him a little bit. Um, but they've gotten really complicated, and he sort of, I mean, he sort of popelled them, you could say. He's, they're subjected to something, some kind of time, and they're not uh, fastidious at all which seems quite uh, different than most color field painting, that they have, you know, things that seem dirty and that seem decaying and alien in them. And um, I don't quite buy his statement that they're not, they don't have some kind of geopolitical significance because of the way he uses distressed materials and like that sort of pink, yellow, and blue and has fabric separating those big bands of color. And he, he also just has a lot of different ideas. I mean, he's, there's something kind of wicked about him. And, you know, I, I feel like he sort of plays games with you. Like these two paintings, this is sort of like taking one kind of painting and splattering, you know, I don't know what, an Olitsky across it. It's, I mean, that, that's a printed ground. And then he's just going to pour this thick paint across it kind of with some thought to arrangement or colors. And then across the way from those paintings, which you know you could call postmodern in some way, um, there are these two small, also recent works that were very worked and kind of, I don't know, just, uh, I mean, again, about materials in this great way and kind of expressionistic. And you, you just felt like they'd taken a lot of time and attention from him. And he'd kind of, they were kind of like simmering in a good way, a completely the opposite of of the ones across the way, uh, the, la- the the two on the on the with the printed bands. Yeah, yeah. I I think I, I think just to clarify something about the the quotation I use of his saying he wants to paint to dance. He doesn't want. He's non-programmatic. I think that he was, um, I think he's, I get the impression that he's appreciative of the newfound interest from Okwi, Enzo War, and others in, in his work as um, uh, an African diasporist artist. Um, and I, I don't think he denies or suppresses um, political content um, by way of personal connection with uh, materials and processes. 
Um, I think he just, I think he's just perhaps the old formalist in him is, is, is sort of crying uh, out that he, uh, in the first and last analysis, he wants us to be with the work, which is something I'm, I'm sure the Pope L feels as well. Um, I, I, the, um, I've never really knew him as a, as a, as a particularly hard-edged formal abstractionist, even though uh, he did discover abstraction during the 60s and, that, and 70s in that period in, in New York. But um, uh, I, I, in a way, um, there's always been a kind of endearing scruffiness and, and, and kind of informality and process in, in the work. And the distressed materials, the, the diaphanous quality, I think those are... Um, both personal and also um, uh, relate to some sense of identity. Uh, what what sense did you get, um, Lila, in the relationship between um, formal investigation and um, uh, personal and collective history in his work? Well, I thought these were a real joy as objects, um, and it's it's interesting to see the trajectory of a painter who. I mean, I, I suppose those are the map paintings are conceptual abstractions, but I mean that it's not that abstract. Um, so I, I think it's really lovely to see the evolution from sort of having to really grapple with the thing that you are representing um, to get that point across and tell that story and situate it and sort of call to people in a recognizable way. And then this evolution over time, where it feels to me like he has allowed himself the freedom to really be with the material in a way that is personal because he's he's in it and his whole history is in it and his, the history of his use of color and the evolution of his manipulation of paint is present but they're you know loose and exuberant in a way and they just um they don't explicate um but they are very present um with the viewer um this one in these, this um, set in particular, the way in which um, it's not only that it seems like two very different types of work brought together, but like sort of a really gleeful playing with that. Um, sort of like, look at what I can do, look at what my capacity has become. Yes. Um, I found very exciting and pleasurable. Well, and the thing about those paintings in particular, but I think it's something that arises periodically in his work, is that uh, you know, they're really kind of ugly, but they're ugly almost through being too pretty or something like that. So he kind of has this way of playing with extremes of aesthetic oh, response. When you get up close to some of them, they're sort of fetid, you know, like... Yeah. And, and playing with stains, pores, and, and gluey agglomerations, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that... Um, of, of all the second-generation um, New York school people, uh, the, the one he actually comes closest to in, in sensibilities is a certain phases of late Jules Zalitsky where tons of medium was mixed in with pigment to, to create a kind of, uh, kind of ugly sublime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because uh, there's a kind of purity to Olitsky, and a kind of, particularly in the heavy paintings, this kind of dumb materiality. I mean, he really wants to be sort of implacable. And he also is very Greenbergian, like this is flat, this is completely abstract, 
And it seems like in these works, he's really over, he's upending, Bowling is upending that. He's saying right. there, these paintings read different ways. You can see that they're staying painted in the beginning, but then there's all this other stuff that goes on that you may not see at first. You know, you may have to get up closer. Um, I think it's an, you know, I think Greenberg would disapprove of this. I don't know. Sure, Maybe I'm... sure, because he's taking like three or four different moments that Olitsky presented and... Well, Olitsky never had fabric in his paintings, and he also never had printed stripes. I mean, that's like an Olitsky on top of, you know, quoted in a no way. Of, maybe, yes. Yes. I was thinking just in terms of the, the gel, the impasto, and the gooiness. So those are enough to, to get going. But, um, but, yeah, useful distinctions, thanks. Yeah. Um, but um, so the, the fabrics... Now, this relates biographically, in a, in a way, to his, his mother ran a, a, a very big, successful um, general store in, in uh, uh, New Amsterdam, um, uh, in New Guinea. And, um, in British Guiana. British Guiana. As sorry. it was then. Yes, different continent. Yeah. Okay. All right. A different end of the planet. Minor detail. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> Um, that um, yeah, so there's a, there's there's a little bit of the the personal history, but there's also possibly uh, Lila um, some 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 political or at least um, ethnic identification in um, the the this kind of appropriated surface, uh, um, the appropriated support rather um, of of these kind of materials. Does that resonate with you? Um. Can I share a quote with you that I really love about this work? Yeah. John Yao in Hyperallergic wrote, it is as if the gritty reality of the world had creeped into the paintings. Mm. Um, and that really speaks to me. I mean, I, I'm always hesitant specifically with abstraction uh, for obvious reasons to sort of pin it too tightly to like this means that. Sure. So given that his is a life that was shaped by the realities it was shaped by, of course. Um, but what I find more sort of formally interesting is the way that it's sort of the opposite of like a sterile or joyless formalism. It's a formalism that is open-ended and sort of leaky at the edges so that these like little eruptions of like a very human materiality come in. And to me, that's sort of primarily more interesting than what the precise political legibilities of it might be. Sure. It's a, but it's a very romantic abstraction. If, if one could think of uh, the, the Greenbergian formalist as being a kind of classic, as being like mm. the, the anger of abstraction, he's more the Delacroix of abstraction, that it's, it's, it's uh, softer at the edges and... and um, more personal and more contingent. Does that totally uh, off? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're all they're all they're all Delacroix. You know, to be to be an anger in in abstraction, you need you have to have hard edges and you have to have frontality and, mm. um, and so on. I mean, they, they also Litsky doesn't have those things. Or, no, or, or, no, I mean, not the work I know. They're they're all suffused colors, you know, kind of floating in and out of each other with just a bit of a something at the edge. Mm. Um, That's a very specific period, though. 
But no, that's, I mean, let's say it's the period, I think it. that is, anyway, he, it's, I don't really know, you know, like, okay, Kenneth Nolan has geometry. Yeah. You know, I think you're, in a way you have to have that to be the classicist. I don't, I don't know if, a, I mean, maybe Olitsky had a geometric period, but I'm not familiar with it. Um, but I think that's getting away from, uh, from bowling. Although I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, if bowling is having a comeback, if you want to call it like that, yeah, um, well, he is certainly, uh, and we can reevaluate him now in different ways. Does does it give us the means as critics and in some cases the historians to uh, to reevaluate someone as uh, benighted uh, in reputation as Olitsky or um, other other? People uh, who were big names in the '70s that uh, that someone like Bowling was associated with, uh, who are kind of semi-forgotten now. Or it might do the opposite. It might send us back to look at those uh, abstract painters who were marginalized by the the juggernaut of of formalism, uh, and 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 think, for instance, of someone like. Uh, Robert Natkin with his more narrative, personal, romantic, uh, cl Paul Clay-like sensibility, um, or, um, or many of the artists um, who, who would make particular sense, perhaps, with uh, bowling, um, like uh, uh, Shields and... Um, um, Alan Shields and um, Howardina... Pindell. Pindell. Weird. I was just thinking of and Shields. Our like loving Shields and, as a kind of indirect influence. Right. Right. Sort of uh, messier, scruffier, more down and dirty, um, uh, made abstraction rather than, uh, say, conceptualized and strategized and executed abstraction. That might be. Uh, that might be. It might be part of a revival of interest in that kind of work that. Bowling would direct us towards panelists. However, I would like to now move to uh, Charlene von Heil, um, who'd like to start us off on this. Uh, Barry, I haven't heard from you so much as a starter. Um, um, she's much uh, talked about as being uh, one of the um, being a, a leading uh, figure in a, a revival of abstraction. Would you go along with that? Well. I, I wouldn't think of it in that way, but uh, she's a leading figure of something, yes. uh, you know, and she's someone who uh, a lot of painters that I know have, you know, long spoken of being kind of inspired by and, and they really admire her work and so on. And I have to say that up until this show, I couldn't really quite see what they were talking about. Uh, I could see that she had lots of technique uh, and that she was willing to try lots of things. She didn't repeat herself, uh, but it always seemed, uh, I, ne I could never, and again, it's a very intuitive thing. It's, it's you know, like about, well, what is the touch in uh, Popel? I could never get the feeling that all that technique grasped a, uh, a subject that I could feel. And uh, somehow uh, a lot of the paintings in this show just had a kind of 
clearer, um, what can I say, a clearer feeling, a thread of feeling through them that tied all, all the different juxtaposed bits together and made, uh, made a kind of intuitive sense to me. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah. That's a good start. Um, uh, Roberta, I imagine you've seen quite a number of the nine shows she's had with Petzl. Um, yes. Um, how, how is she doing in terms of her own development? Where does this show stand in, in relation to what well, she's I, capable of? I don't know. I always think of her in a way that I can't decide whether it's good or bad as a musician who's tone deaf. In other words, she is... She wants things to clash in her paintings. She wants to make loud noises, and and she wants them to be very awkward and unresolved. And sometimes I feel like that painting that was. Sometimes I feel like she doesn't know when to stop, <laughs> and she's afraid of a certain kind of softness, and she, and that there's this incredible pose going on. I mean, that statement you read me about that you read about. She's not interested in the materials or the history of the medium. I just think that's bullshit. Yeah, I didn't yeah, I think believe that's that for a, a minute. Really, that's a real position. And, and I, I think of her as, you know, you have to understand that she's a woman who is German, leaving Germany and having a career in painting. And there's, there's not many people like that. You know, she's very alone. And, she, and so I feel like a lot of this is to kind of... You know, she wants to position. She she wants to kind of reject things, and and she wants to be very tough. But I kept going through that show, thinking, well, this is nice. You know, what happened? Like, why is all this stuff on top of it? Do you know? Or even that painting that you were just showing, where there's the red that red and black ground was kind of beautiful, and then there's this jagged shape, and then there's a bowling ball silhouette and a bunch of stars, and you could just see her like looking at that background and thinking, "Wow, I've got to fuck with this." You know, yeah. it's just too kind of easygoing. Yes, and. Isn't that very much how the aesthetics she comes out of? Polka, Albert Olin. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of disruptive deconstructionist. I know, uh, but Polka and Olin are really softies. I mean, they really are. They really can tolerate a kind of beauty, and I feel like she rarely lets that happen. And um, does that mean she's doing it better than them, or does it mean they're doing it better than them? I don't know. I feel like she's at a stage that I mean, I do feel like some of these paintings were better, but. There are really only about four I wanted to spend a lot of time with. You know, that, I, that, that it's just kind of a performance. And it's, it's pictorially kind of interesting and nervy and all this, but I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm just not with it. You know, this lack of resolution as a how, style. How do you, I mean, you mentioned Erlen and, and Polka. How do you position her in relation to Laura Owens? Well, Laura Owens has so many different sides, and you know she goes from she has some of this, mm-hmm. and she makes things that leave you not ill at ease. Mm-hmm. But this is a, this is incredibly consistent, whereas Laura Owens can just like you know like in that show sort of paint a paint a white horse that you might find on a piece of folk art and and give it a kind of energy from her from her own scale and the brushwork, mm-hmm. and. She's very permissive and she's very promiscuous, whereas 
Von Heil is more within, you know, she always almost, her paintings are almost always the same proportion, and she's promiscuous in this very tight way, like, I've done this, and now I'm going to be completely unpredictable and do that. Mm. And that, there's a kind of predictability in that after a while. So programmatic promiscuous, yeah. sort of. Um... But I, I, I just think, you know, like, how could, you know, it's a problem if you're going to dismiss, dismiss your medium. But I, you know, maybe that's what is neat right now. You know, it gets but back to Peter Halley and pa- anti-painting painting and things like that. Isn't that, isn't it, uh, Lila, a little bit of the have your cake and eat it thing of, uh, of being uh, an abstract painter, but supremely uh, self-conscious about the uh, kind of theoretical need to uh, avoid uh, precisely the kind of resolution that it sounds like Roberta is craving? I don't, I don't think it's necessarily asking too much to, to be an abstract painter and also have a sort of programmatic approach to what you're doing. I don't think it works terribly well right. in this particular case, but I don't think that's a problem of concept. I just think it's, a, it's a, probably my problem of just like not responding in an excited way to the execution. And I think that might be the lack of resolution. It might be um, just the sense that I feel, we can't look at it, sorry. Um, <laughs> but like there's there's so many art historical references that I see when I look at this and I find also it- so pop culture. Yeah, and pop culture. And I find it a little bit frustrating to just be like, look what I can do. Now I'm doing it again differently. Now what if I just put these two things together and see what happens? But it, mm. none of it feels to me like there's a real like hooking into a direction and exploring it. It's as if she's using the, the culture as, her, as a palette and, and, and therefore the works, therefore the objects appropriated don't uh, carry the... Um, previous life they had in the culture particularly. I mean, I I don't think that's the problem so much. It's just that the way in which they are appropriated does not suggest to me a sort of pattern of thought that I want to follow. I wouldn't have seen it as a problem. I just, uh, it's a neutral statement to to use the popular culture as as a palette. I mean, because if you think of Albert Olin as being a peer, one thinks of Albert Olin, you know, those of us who have a kind of Alfred H. Barr diagram in our head all the time of, of, of following trajectories that uh, in, a, in a way in, in, a, in his figurative way, uh, David Sally is a, is a kind of uh, honorary consul for the Albert Olin line, isn't he in, in, in American painting but uh, uh, um, Sally's use of um, sources and references and, 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 and his uh, uh, energy of, of juxtaposition seems very different from um, uh, von Heil's. Well, his is very kind of languid uh, compared you think to so? her kind of, I mean, she's both so much more kind of active in, in, in that. In, in this sort of juxtaposing and uh, juggling things and... Uh, and also making each painting different from the one next to it so that, you know... Yeah. Even when in the in that um, uh, uh, what's it called mechanics of poetry? Uh, what, what are the titles of those um, uh, ones with poetry in the title? Um, um, uh, anyway, there's, there's one is a, called Dial P for painting. That's pretty good. Yes. Um, 
Dial P for Penny was the best title in the show. Poetry Machine. The Poetry Machine, okay. thank you, yes. The Poetry Machine, which gives us a kind of stencil of the same figure in at least three uh, canvases. Don't... Sorry. Just to, just to remind the panel and also the audience, the, the images in the background, is, we're not presenting a slide uh, lecture. They're, they're just to have some nice images to uh, keep in mind what it is we're talking about. And um, maybe we should all have our own uh, ability to summon images we want to show, but that would be a very different kind of presentation. But um, in those uh, uh, um, poetry machine paintings, it, it, it is, uh, we, we do get the same figure recurring, but, but with very different effect in each one. Um, I guess in the end, I find that there's something cynical and exhausting about her work. Yeah. And that, and I can also imagine her being admired by painters mm. who like painting better. She could, she could have a real influence. I mean, I'm, she probably has. Mm -hmm. But I just, I just want her to, I don't know grow up or give in or, you know, don't try to understand more the medium you're working in. I, I guess I, that's what I felt like she finally did with this show. That I, well, feel. I feel it changing a little, but still, you know. And uh, I don't know, like with this sort of, even, even though I can also sort of uh, peg it as an appropriation, it becomes something else. Like all this sort of, these kind of wavy frond-like shapes uh, that are half uh, kind of, I don't know, almost, uh, you know, late Matisse channeled through Philip Taff or something like that. But then she kind of, like in the Tondo, she kind of really uh, sort of makes it her own. And it has, uh, you know, to say, uh, to use some... Um, Frank Bowling's words, I thought, I thought she did make the paint dance there yeah. and in certain others. I must say, just to put in a word, that I, I felt that um, uh, it is remarkable that an artist of such almost programmatic cynicism should be capable of sustaining big energy. And, and I, while I didn't love any individual painting, I felt that this show as a whole um, achieved um, an impressive volume of just sheer noise uh, I liked the energy. I, I, I was I impressed by the I disagree with that. I was yeah. impressed by the energy. You're talking about ambition. <laughs> ambition, yeah. um, but also, also a fulfilled ambition that, that, that it, it sustained a determination to make um, some, some big visual statement within each canvas and to, and to ensure the exhibition as a whole kept you guessing from picture to picture. Well, audience, uh, two, two exhibitions to hear your opinions on there. Uh, Frank Bowling at um, Alexander Gray Associates and Charlene von Heil at Petzl. Uh, again, we'll take it in whatever order uh, people wish to comment on. I'm sure there are a lot of painters in this audience, and I'm sure we're going to have some, um, some extra opinions to throw into the mix here. Um, don't be shy. <laughs> or are you all just very thirsty and... Oh, yes. Hi. I couldn't disagree more with your assessment of Charlene's work. <coughs> I, I don't see it programmatic in any possible way. In fact, I think Laura Owens is much more programmatic and much less um, like overtly emotional. I think that Charlene doesn't have a a clue of what's going to happen when she starts. And I think what's amazing about these 
is how they seem like crazy and illogical, and yet they always completely hold together as a kind of a unified um, energetic statement. And if you sort of try to pick the how those paintings are made apart, you can't really find it. I mean, it, it seems like they're just wild and crazy, but when you sort of look at how they're put together, they're very kind of methodical. I mean, the fact that she'll make these little, like, um, like those, like in that one, uh, like those crazy lines, but they all kind of um, stay in their in their proper place, and yet they seem like crazy and irrational. And uh, I, I think that that unity that she m- makes um, out of that sort of irrational thing is really remarkable for me to behold. And the fact that she doesn't seem to, I don't see them as cynical in any, in any way, anyway. Fantastic, thank you. Dennis Carden, a former review panelist. It's, it's um, while we, we love to hear from everybody equally, there's something for me gratifying when uh, people have already been paid to be up here on the panel, like Robert C. Morgan and uh, Dennis Carden, uh, come along for sport and and uh, uh, offer us their opinion. or charity maybe or charity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, perhaps people are intimidated by the eloquence of Dennis Carden. And oh well, yeah, yes, Robert C. Morgan. <laughs> I find I saw this uh, exhibition this afternoon for the first time. I've been trying to see it for a while. Uh, I find the the painter, the painter, to be uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, fearful of intimacy, which I see as a weakness in the work. And I think that the problem, therefore, is how she deals with distance, not so much in the sense of um, the early 20th century aestheticist, sorry, but uh, in the sense of uh, maybe the current phase we're going through where distance in painting is overwrought. It's too much. And I think that it's very easy to lose touch with what you're doing if the intimacy is somewhere Delete it. Right. Yes, in the middle of the hall. I don't know who I think. Yes. I, uh, well, one thing that I think is kind of interesting is when I look at, when I went to the show, I think that she uses uh, figuration and some figurative strategies to resolve the paintings. And no one's really been t- uh, talking about that that I think in some ways the paintings can be seen as hybrid between figurative and abstract. Yeah, that's interesting, because she herself tries to knock exactly that on its head, saying she can't stand it when people say anything is between figuration and, and abstraction. Um, but, 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 but it's the elephant in the room in a way, but it's, it's again, it perhaps relates to uh, Robert Morgan's comments on on a fear of intimacy that um, when there is an image it's it's resolutely abstracted isn't it i mean it, it, or well, i, I it think works that as... the idea that abstraction is can't be pure 
mm. has been, artists have been working on that, say, since the 80s. Yeah. And that working in this gap between abstraction and representation is, it's a very populated place yeah. right now. And, I, but I'm amazed that she wouldn't say, yeah, that's a bowling pin. You know, and you're, and you're supposed to see it as that, as part of this other, you know, as kind of in an alien environment, an alien abstract environment, so. I mean, we are programmed to, to recognize stuff, and so when we're presented with abstraction, to, to the chagrin of every abstractionist, we misread the abstraction as a representation of something. And at the same time, of course, the, the history of painting is is such that we look at representations abstractly all the time as well. So I don't see how anyone can uh, imagine they could escape the uh, duality of abstraction and figuration in any kind of art, even if it's the, the most hard-edged abstraction or the most um, mimetically realist realism. And there's, there's abstraction in one and realism in the other. So I think that you're barking up the wrong tree if you think you can. That's my two cents worth. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to point out, oh, yes, from an abstract painter, one more comment. I'm going to have to take one more comment, which will probably make us late, but that's okay. Worth it. Um, yeah, pass it along, please, quickly-ish. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to, to just draw attention to Frank Bowling as being a painter who whose means were basically to get lost in pouring paint and get lost in a horrible mess of horrible chaos of paint, which could only be saved by incredible color, by incredible intuition for color. And that kind of getting lost in just a catastrophe of paint is a particular moment that we've kind of forgotten about it, became very unfashionable or whatever. We, we haven't seen it in a while, and it was kind of wonderful to see it, to see those paintings and to just, um, I think, just thinking about what, which artist he is similar to. I just mm. think about that. Just a mess of just, you know, gallons of paint sort of souping on the floor and then managing to pull the painting off from there. So just an appreciation. Redemption. Thank you very much. I would just say one thing to that, which all sounds like it's going in the right direction, except it's somehow uh, leaving out the fact that he's a kind of intellectual and that he has, uh, you know, if you've read his writing, uh, you know that he has a very um, keen analytical and critical uh, questioning of anything that uh, he looks at. And so I think that in the, the passage from the horrible mess to the dancing color, uh, somehow has to, has to come that determined intellect. And right. just not to forget it. Well, certainly think about it, whether we remember it or not is, is uh, uh, beyond anyone's control. But what I would like to say before we head to one Grand Army Plaza is to remind you to save the date of November the 13th for our next panel, where the confirmed speakers so far are uh, Jason Farrago and, and Seth Rodney. Thank you very much indeed.